Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. In April of 1919, the month that Gropius published the Bauhaus Manifesto, he issued a statement in a pamphlet on the Exhibition for Unknown Architects in Berlin. With the capital still reeling from the jolt of armistice and several juntas, it seemed to many at the time that anything was possible in Germany. The old walls were gone. If people dreamt of something with sufficient force, it could happen. And unknown architects especially could fill that role. It was no oversight for the imminent director of a design school in post-revolution Germany to become involved with a museum exhibition. The event would have served to present the museum as a medium to connect reform-minded patrons to young architects. Prospective students could be welcomed and informally evaluated. The strategic and political skill of Grofius that ensured his school survived three changes in location over 14 years was evinced even this early into the game. The exhibition pamphlet reflected the language of the Bauhaus Manifesto. Let us will, conceive, produce together the new idea of architecture. Differing from that work, what follows in the pamphlet is an injunction to distinguish between a longing for the stars and everyday work. But far from dismissing a drive to fantasy, the text argues that buildings should be decorated in Farbenmärchen, that is, fairy tales of color. In Grofius's view, then, dream and reality were both clearly demarcated and intimately connected. As is often the case in our personal lives, dreams and wakefulness influence each other. And so it is that, from the very start, we see the director of the Bauhaus staking out what would become a middle ground between the inward drive of the Expressionists and the Sachlich bent of the 1920s. An exemplification of this middle ground was explored in our last episode, with the Bauhaus exhibition of 1923, which featured the very material monochrome House am Horn, which we covered earlier, as well as the surpassingly colored and unbuilt utopian community of the Bauhaus Siedlung. As Bergdahl writes, the shape of the Siedlung began to crystallize in 1920, as Grofius and Adolf Meyer worked on plans for the Zomerfeld House for which they had developed a patented system of interlocking pre-cut timbers. It was an elaboration of this method, the Block Bauweise Sommerfeld, 
that student Walter Detterman presented in his proposals for the land south of Weimar, which was on offer to the school. At this time, there was not yet any specialized training for architects at the Bauhaus, so Detterman completed a four-week intensive course that Grofius had arranged at the local technical school. The young apprentice produced a layout for a single-family home on a square plan that looks like a predecessor to the house on Horn, but where that later instance of a settlement house arranged rooms in a ring around a central space. These earlier plans employed a simple cruciform division that distributed the house into quadrants. Imagine a square with an equilateral cross dividing it into four smaller squares with still smaller rooms at the outer edges, and this is the general layout. Near the center of each main wall, the arms of the cross, was a door connecting the rooms. While the house on horns open, central area allowed the occupants to cross directly from one room to any one opposite, the blockhouse's simpler partition meant that, if occupants wanted to get to the room diagonally adjacent to their current location, they would have to pass through one of the other spaces to get there. This basic division of dwelling where no area was given to a hallway or shared space, may strike us as odd today, but it was the default condition before corridors came into broader use in the 18th and 19th centuries. One can easily observe how the insertion of public or shared space into a dwelling straightforwardly creates the fact of privacy. It is only with a central space, or through the use of hallways, that a multi-room house prevents someone else from needing to walk through your room to reach the kitchen or toilet. Though Detterman's blockhouses for the Siedlung tried to mitigate these intrusions by adding some subdivision in the outer areas, the clear demarcation between the shared and the personal that a plan like the House on Horn displays will always favor privacy. If architecture were, however, a matter of simple advantage and aiming for neat, best solutions, there would be little need for architects, nor the requirement to study it. The reality of the profession is, in many senses, one of economics. Architecture is a transactional craft, a process of trade-offs. In his book, Bergdahl describes Detterman's plans as naive but compelling, without showing the image or going into any details. The naivete in question possibly refers to this very issue of four-square division impacting privacy and circulation. We can only guess at what he found compelling, though for our part, attention should be drawn 
to the blockhouse's most striking difference with the house on horn, namely, Detterman's unique use of the dwelling's central space. Prefiguring much of the international style's gospel of open plans and common areas, the central living space of the house on horn is roughly twice as large as that of any of the surrounding rooms. Though the modern canon would argue that a large and flexible open space such as this would allow occupants to use it as they chose, in daily use we see it serving mostly as a combination of hallway and parlor, aligning more with detriment than the typical course of later modernism, we feel that trimming an enormous open space in favor of larger bathrooms, extra closet space, a bigger kitchen, larger study, or thicker walls around the children's playroom, pick one of any, might be yet more pleasing. Man does not live by space alone. Nor is Detterman's programmatic use of the central area without specific gain. The four main rooms are divided around the chimney of the house. Slightly more than a decade before the Siedlung plans were drawn up, Frank Lloyd Wright's Wasmut Portfolio was published in Germany and made a huge impression on the young Grofius, Mies, and the architect futurely known as Le Corbusier. Unlike so many modernists, Wright was not a partisan of mechanical exuberance, but the founder of a new and distinct, if deeply rooted, domesticity. One of Wright's lifelong dictums in support of this was, The hearth is the heart of the home. He insisted, wherever possible, that a fireplace be included in a house. Even where he installed steam or electric heat, this apparatus would be covered up and a hearth made into the communal social focus. Detterman's four-square plan is an interesting variation on this theme, with the single chimney being accessed by four rooms. Like Amhorn, there is in fact a central space, but by contrast, one that was only as large as the fireplace. That central fire would be shared with and tended by any of the four main rooms. The plan shows built-in furniture encircling the divided fireplace. One could then never walk directly to a room in the opposite corner, but if the chimney did not itself contain the four-square division, one could always see that room through the flames. Further examining the disposition of the home's center, another layer to the contrast between the two houses, and thus the two phases of the Bauhaus is presented. By 1923, the newly built House am Horn 
summoned the modern family as a unit to a large, central place of natural daylight, the open quality of which was air. In 1920, the proposed blockhouse provided four distinct windows to the same central crucible. Individuals would be welcomed by the space, especially at night, to tend a patch of enclosed fire. And even though the plans were never executed, this unbuilt space of imagination was directly linked to what was built in the house am horn. The one responded to the other, and, in several respects, the two shared something of a family resemblance. But to imply, as many proselytes of modernism would, that this was a necessary path from dream to reality, one that outlined the communal, prefabrication, and neutrality of form and color as both desirable and inevitable, mowed over the most promising growths that architectural thought had shown in centuries. Symbolic and actualized themes of illumination and transformation went well beyond the microcosm of the hearth to inform the mesocosm of the Siedlung's utopian community. Detterman's overall site plan for the Siedlung, where the four square houses would be situated, is a remarkable achievement. An image of it, as well as a photo of the model, can be found on our website. Since this plan is laid out with such brilliant color on a large sheet of vellum more than half a meter tall, following the link we provide to the high-resolution version is emphatically recommended. The original has been displayed at the small Bauhaus Museum in Weimar, where, at first glance, I took it to be a purely decorative design for a rug or a wall hanging similar to the one found in Grofius's office at Weimar. Whether consciously or not, its patterning and geometry are stirringly reminiscent of certain psychedelic visions. The limited color palette creates triggering contrasts between the adjacent yellow, green, red, blue, and black laid out in mostly even tones. Yet, showcasing Detterman's skill, the shapes also resolve with astonishing consonance into a program that works on levels functional, formal, and symbolic. A rare trifecta. The overall plan is an elongated trapezoid with chamfered edges cut off at the bottom side. This overall shape recurs, being concentrically nested at several levels and framing an open central area within the boundary of workshops, dwellings, and administrative buildings, all numbered and laid out in black. If you like, take a look at the overall plan while I describe these functions to 
save the trouble of zooming in and out and translating the key's handwritten German. Descriptions at the upper edge of the sheet indicate which programmatic function is assigned to each area. At the top of the plan is the main gate, labeled as opening out on the road to the nearby resort village. It is flanked by two trapezoids, a storage area and a physical plant to the right side, a swim hall and a gymnasium to the left. The dining hall is central at the top and would be directly before you upon entering the gate. At the bottom center is the main administrative building, scaled to a footprint of approximately 90 by 17 meters. It is surrounded by guest houses and apartment blocks. The model demonstrates that, except for the modest office tower at the center of the administrative building, none of these structures would be taller than two stories. The two-level single-family Zomerfeld system blockhouses, presumably those with the cross plan and the central chimneys, are scaled 20 meters square large enough to be duplexes when compared to the house on horn, and face the inner plot of the community. Ringing these on the outside edge are the workshops. A short road at the top of the plan links workshops to the storage and supply area. Because the workshops are shown as interconnected to both the houses and each other, it is plausible that delivery of supplies, as well as walking from any workshop to another, could all be handled beneath a roof if so desired, away from precipitation or cold. Though we have so far come across no evidence of a direct influence, a utopian community design that made use of such lateral, interconnected stretches of buildings was the phalanstery plan devised by Charles Fourier. These extended and connected L-shapes, branching out from a central point, inspired Corbusier to develop the internal locking spaces that would one day define the elevation profiles for his Marseille apartment block. By using these shapes in the Bauhaus's Siedlung plan, Detterman not only balanced green space with workshops and dwellings without resorting to the monotony of a grid, they also provided a practical avenue for potential expansion. Elegant, organic growth that can preserve and enhance a community is among the greater challenges to any utopian endeavor. This had been the founding quandary behind Fourier's choice of concatenated L-shapes in his phalanstery, and Detterman's application of the concept was outstanding in its capacity to accommodate extension at his settlement's periphery. But it is examination of the inner space of the Bauhaus Siedlung that is perhaps most revealing. Though its overall shape could seem strictly formalist, or even arbitrary at a passing glance, it is nothing but deliberate. The chamfered trapezoid is repeatedly hidden within itself, recursively nested and outlined in several colors on the boundaries, 
which lead into the central feature of the settlement, a sunken lawn, recessed and surrounded by raised stadium-type step seating with a performance stage at the lower end. The backdrop to this stage, the focal point of the entire community, is a raised platform bearing the label Bauhaus Symbol. At the center of this platform, rendered in green, a hexagonally faceted object, probably meant to be an illuminated glass jewel with a base nearly ten square meters points upward. Grofius's view on materials that was covered last episode should be helpful for context here. Houses of wood, the material of the present, adoringly girdle a glistening idol of glass. For all the festivals, assemblies, sports, and celebrations, the community would emerge from the present, built in wood, and reach towards a luminous, bejeweled future. Join us as we explore the sources for this symbolism, what it means, and why it took the shapes it did, next time on Lapsus Lima.